This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Reflecting on a career of service to others. That is the focus of today's show with our, our very special guest, Dr. Lewis Charles Harvey. Dr. Harvey is the father of my co-host, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Join us for a conversation about the elder Dr. Harvey's multifaceted career in the fields of education and ministry. Marcus and I will be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. As always, I'm happy to be in the studio. Happy to have you all in the audience listening to the show again. And very pleased to be here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how is it going? I'm doing well. I'm, I must admit, I'm, a, I'm, I'm simultaneously exli- <laughs> excited and a bit flummoxed uh, <laughs> to be here in the presence of my, my father, who, for whom I have so much respect um, and love. So I think this will be a fun conversation. You know, I think we should have added another Harvey to the conversation. <laughs> You know, Carter should be here, you know, but, you know, we'll we'll talk about that later. But I'm glad to be here with your father, too. Mm. And, you know, someone who you and I have talked a lot about, you know, you've talked about your father and the example that he kind of set for you for your life. I mean, you have followed not exactly in his path, but as Mm -hmm. far as education goes, Mm -hmm. you've kind of followed in his path. And when I think about my father's influence, I'm reminded of something that Richard Wright wrote in the 1940s in Black Boy when he said that um, it had been through books that I had managed to keep myself alive. And that had evoked in me vague glimpses of life's possibilities. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the things that my father deposited in me is, is not only a love for, for books and for reading, but a love for, for being curious about the world, right. for doing my best to study the world. And, and I think perhaps more so, more so than anything else, um, I'm, I'm, I'm indebted to him for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Marcus, you know that you use my uh, word, a, a word that I love, the word curious mm-hmm. and curiosity. I had to give a talk not too long ago on that topic. I was sweating it out as to what I was going to do with it. But, I, you know, I began to realize that, you know, it's really curiosity is, is central to our humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems to me that we need to find ways to feed, especially younger people's curiosity. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, I talked about how the people in my lives, my father included, but other people like my grandfather, my mentor, Jay mm-hmm. Parker, and then John Hope Franklin, how they played uh, multiple roles in taming kind of it, taming guiding and inspiring the curiosity in mm-hmm. my life and yeah. i kind of hear you saying this yeah and, and building on that point you know it's one thing to be curious it's another thing to pursue that curiosity right. in a disciplined focused way absolutely and i think that's another um example that my father set for me right. not just um an example about the importance of being curious of being curious but also serving as an example of what it means to to, to actively, right. in a disciplined, focused, committed, passionate way, pursue curiosity. Because pursuing curiosity ain't easy. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so, it, so it, it helps to have um, an exemplar before you to sort of help guide your pursuit of right. your curiosity. So your father has done that in his role mm-hmm. as your father, but mm-hmm. he's also been a scholar. I know we're, we're, he, we're, he is a scholar. We'll mm-hmm. talk to him about that. And, you know, he, he I definitely want to talk to him about this, that he was an administrator, too, because (laughs) for some reason I've allowed myself to get drunk into this world. And um, I probably should have talked to him before 
beforehand. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, but yeah. He has yeah. this kind of multifaceted mm-hmm. career, and so we're going to talk to him about that, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. So Marcus and I are going to just step out for a brief moment, and we'll be back in just a minute. Well, again, this is the Waters and Harvest Show. I'm Darren Waters. We're coming to you from Asheville, North Carolina, here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. So glad that you all are staying in tune with us here. Marcus, this is, you know, I'm just, I'm very excited about this conversation. You know, a few weeks ago, we had the chance to have my my son in here to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, what he's doing. And I marveled at the fact of how he is growing as an individual. You talked about books and your father giving you this love of books. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised to hear Jonathan talk about how he's developed this love of books. I said, well, I did something wrong. Right with him. But we're so glad to have your father, Dr. Lewis Charles Harvey, here in the studio with us. Dr. Harvey, thank you for coming in and joining us today. Thanks, Dad. Welcome. Welcome. It's, good. it's a delight to be here. All right. Well, you know, I, we want to talk about your career. I want to hear, I'm, I'm sure you might have some really good and interesting uh, and maybe comical stories that you can tell us about my dear brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey, here. And if, if I can goad you a little bit to, to tell us some of those secret stories. <laughs> perhaps we'll get a little bit of that. But I want I really want to start. Uh, the, the primary reason for your visit here is not only to visit Marcus, but you're here to visit your grandson. That's right? yes, the primary reason. <laughs> I can talk to Marcus on the phone, but I can't talk to Carter on the phone. Right. So, t- so tell me, how, how is the visit with Carter going? And, and I'm curious. You know, as my sons get older, the oldest one is 23, and the youngest one is 19, but I have told them – I do not want to be a grandfather anytime soon. So, you know, that, yeah. I, but I look forward to the day when I am. You know, so now, is there a difference between between being a father and a grandfather? And if so, can we talk about that? Oh, sure, definitely. <laughs> being, a, being a father, you have to uh, show love and discipline. And as a grandfather, you just receive the kid as he is and pretty much let him do what, what he wants to do within certain uh, bounds, yeah, and yeah. then give him back to his mom and dad. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, because Carter has certainly been uh, testing boundaries more so than usual since dad right. has been in town. So, well, <laughs> you know, you have traveled here from Washington D.C., mm-hmm. and we'll talk to you a, li- a little bit here in just a few minutes uh, about about Washington and, and what you've been doing there. I know Marcus has has uh, conveyed to me that you will be retiring mm-hmm. um, soon, but I know, uh, given what I know. About about you, I think you're just retiring from one thing and going into something new, right? <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about that. But your roots are here in the South. Right. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? You know, you're from Memphis, Tennessee, to be exact. And can you tell us a little bit about your early background in that city and what it was like growing up there? Yes. Uh, I am the third boy child of Willie and Mary Harvey and the sixth overall child, which means my parents had 12 children. Eight girls and four boys, and I'm the third boy child. Uh, and we grew up in Memphis. When I grew up in Memphis, it, it was a uh, uh, segre- segregated uh, society, and you knew right away uh, your quote unquote place in that society. But even growing up in Memphis, while I knew it was a segregated society, uh, our parents uh, had two major pillars uh, that they uh, insisted that we do. Number one is church. And so I grew up in the AME church, and one of my early uh, 
pictures in my mind that still exist is a picture of Richard Allen, the founder of the AME Church. So I, I, uh, we went to church uh, many, many, many times. And so I grew up in church. And so th- that became, uh, became a foundation for me. Education was the second pillar. Uh, we went to school. We did well in school. And um, we helped one another in school because with uh, with the, the number of people in our family, there was always someone who had already gone in the grades who could help me do certain things. So we helped one mm-hmm. another. And Memphis was was heavily segregated in that particular time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went... I went to segregated uh, grammar schools and high school, graduated in 1963. That's even before the passing of the Civil Rights Bill. Mm-hmm. And uh, being that, uh, I still remember uh, uh, getting on the bus and sitting in the back. I remember you could only go to the zoo on Thursdays mm-hmm. in Memphis, primarily because that was the day that the maids were off. Uh, and they would make oh. sure they would go. Wow. So I could only go we could only, only go to the zoo on Thursday. So it's a heavily a segregated society. Mm-hmm. But in the midst of all of that, you, there was a lot of care. The teachers cared for us. They made certain we did our best. Our parents cared for us. There was community of people. Um, uh, our parents surrounded us with that cared for us because 12 kids in our house is a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, in a nutshell, I guess, is, 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 it, um, is, is Memphis. Uh, it hasn't changed much today, right. uh, but uh, that's, that's where I'm from. And Memphis is in the Mid-South, which means you have Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee coming together. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's that part of Memphis. You get that. My father was a truck driver, worked for the Frisco Railroad. My mother, uh, uh, when she was not pregnant with someone, she worked uh, as, a, as a cook in the school. And and uh, and so she, she was the person that was most influential because she made certain that we did our work because dad was either at work or uh, elsewhere and so um that that's it and mm-hmm. right it's it's interesting and, and memphis really is an important it's a has a very important and rich history for African-American history. I, you know, uh, as a historian who studies the American South, I think I have, I know that recently historians are begin to, beginning to re-examine how the Southern city changed, how it was changed by the Civil War mm-hmm. and how it changed fundamentally after the war. And Memphis is one of those cities where a lot of African-American soldiers who had fought in the federal oh. army settled in Memphis. Mississippi. Oh. I mean, not in not in Memphis, not Mississippi, but in Memphis. And so it was kind of like this. It, it had a very unique, a very unique history be, because of that. So mm-hmm. it's been interesting to kind of look at Memphis and think about it. But something that you said that just kind of sticks out to me, because Marcus and I have had conversations about, you know, where we are, civic health, civic mm-hmm. engagement. And you said something about um, that there was a lot of care, despite the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, these were segregated. This was a segregated mm-hmm city. And I've heard my own parents talk about this as well, but there was this unique sense of care and community that existed in those spaces. Dr. Harvey, you know, with with integration, do you think that that's been lost? Hmm. Um, somewhat, I think so. At least in the in the school, school situation, um, because I, as I recall uh, going to um, uh, Booker T. Washington High School, uh, and my mother was active in the PTA, and so she would talk to all of my teachers, all of mm-hmm. all of uh, the teachers of my 
sisters and brothers, and they would give a report on how we were doing. And there were even instances where teachers would come by to the, come by our house and uh, and help and talk to us because of something our mother said. Mm-hmm. So that sense of caring is lost because it was the community was held together by a similar care for the success and the nurture and the development of the black minds. Mm-hmm. But once you integrated that, that uh, uh, that that saw was, that was lost. All right, right. It's, it's interesting about yeah, and, the, the things I, that were gaining, the things that were lost. Absolutely, and I think that makes that create space for another kind of conversation about it, about the consequences of integration. Mm-hmm. That's another conversation right. for another day. Right. Um, <laughs> so, Dad, you you mentioned the the importance of the nurturing that you experienced mm-hmm. from teachers and others in the midst of a heavily segregated uh, city, Memphis um, to be exact. Uh, were there other specific experiences that you had growing up in Memphis that really played a major role in shaping who you are, shaping your development? And if so, could you, could you speak to that a little bit? Well, I went to church a lot. Um, I went to Lemoyne Owen, and, and there, there uh, I saw the blossom as a thinker, as a thinker, and... Um, and got to understand the the interplay of the various forces in society, the um, the economic, the social, what racism really was, and so I, I began to blossom more as a thinker once I got out of high school mm-hmm. and went to Lamont on because a lot of was, was expected of you, and I went to Lamont on because my brothers and sisters, most of them had had gone to college. Now, Lamont on was it was a residential school, primarily for black for black people who stayed in Memphis and did not go to Tennessee State University, uh, Russ College, or other black-oriented colleges. So I walked to school, basically. I, I, I stayed at home, went to school, and then learned, and then grew, um, uh, because my mind seemed to blossom once I got there uh, at Lemoyne Owen. Well, I I have a question. You know, something that you said, again, so many things that you're saying that are sticking out to me. You said, by going to Lemoyne Owen, um, to college there, you said it was there that you became a thinker. Right. Mm -hmm. But the church was also a prominent, played a prominent role Mm -hmm. in your experiences there. Did the church help? To facilitate that mm. th- that emergence as a thinker, or was sure. it this the space of this intellectual space? You, yeah, you, you raise a good point. Sure, mm-hmm. the church did because I was active in church. Uh, went to church school, Sunday school. You had to be on various programs in the church and to say speeches. Mm-hmm. As I grew older, I began to teach Sunday school, uh, and as I grew more, I shared more of my learning. So, yeah, the church had a very important part in that as well. Right, you know, that's you know, I thank Mark, you for yeah, reminding me of that. <laughs> yeah, Marcus, you know, I have to say, you know, mm-hmm. I think you and I both grew up in 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 the church culture as well. And, you know, as thinkers, as critical thinkers, you know, we have a lot of criticism of institutions. That's mm-hmm. what we do. I mm-hmm. feel that that's what we're supposed to do is criticize institutions, mm-hmm. institutional structures. It's how we get better. Yeah. And I, I do have to say that despite all of the criticism that I have offered, my father is a minister, too, and he hears some of the criticism that <laughs> I have. I do, I do have to say, you know, when I have to get up to do a speech now, Dr. Oh, Harvey, yeah. I'm thinking – 
Well, all of those times that my parents had me memorizing these there lines to stand up in church, you know, actually, that's it, exactly. you know, maybe it helped. It has some, some, some cognitive <laughs> yes. function, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, exa- yeah. that's exactly, that's yeah. exactly right. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, that um, you, you felt that you really didn't blossom intellectually until you arrived at Lemoyne Owen College. Because mm-hmm. I think that in my own, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to parallel that to my own experience, because... Um, even though I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was exposed early to books um, by you and mm-hmm. by others. Um, I, I think that I probably didn't really blossom intellectually until I arrived at Morehouse oh. <laughs> College in Atlanta, Georgia. So I think that that kind of that kind of timeline is is is, is interesting and, 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 and mm-hmm. deeply interconnected. Mm-hmm. But uh, your education wouldn't stop at Lemoyne Owen College, right? So you would go right. on to pursue a master's degree at Colgate. Uh, Rochester Divinity School um, and a PhD in systematic theology at UN Seminary in New York where he studied with the founder of black theology, James Cone, who has authored among many other books, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Could you speak a little bit about what it was like? What was it like to to study, um, especially at Union Seminary with, that, with Professor Cone, late Professor Cone, as an African-American man in the 1970s in New York? What was that experience like? And also, what motivated your decision to continue to pursue education mm-hmm. after after graduating LeMoyne Owen College? Well, as I, uh, as I, I used to, I used to preach a sermon um, because uh, answering a call from God, which was the first sermon I, I think I preached, and and I talk about how I had dreams of becoming a lawyer, uh, mm-hmm. and I say the Black Pyramid Mason of America, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and so, really, after I left the morning on, I went to law school, mm-hmm. which is not a part of uh, part of these of, of my education. Uh, um, I don't list it that much. I went to the University of Iowa School of Law mm-hmm. for one year. And there I developed more critical uh, ability to think. Mm-hmm. And then acknowledged my call to ministry, returned to Memphis, Tennessee, acknowledged the call, and started the theological journey. Now, there was a school in Memphis called Memphis Theological Seminary. I enrolled there for two years. Now, while there in my second year, Lemoyne Owen had Religious Emphasis Week, and Dr. Henry Mitchell, who at that time was dean at Colgate-Rochester, met me and said, well, you don't need to be here. Come on to me, with come to Colgate-Rochester with me, and I guarantee you, you can graduate within one year. So I transferred from Memphis Theological Seminary in my, in my junior year to Colgate-Rochester, went there and as a senior and graduated after, after having only taken eight courses for each semester. Mm-hmm. And then you will find out, and then you will find out that it's during that time that I applied for the PhD program, uh-huh. met Jim Cohn, was interviewed by Jim Cohn, Charles Long, oh. uh, uh, um, Shelby Rooks, and a whole host of persons. Because I had the Colgate-Rochester imprimatur at that time, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to do it from Memphis Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. Now, and then once I got, of course, to Union Theological Seminary with James Cohn, uh, you know, um, I was excited to be with him because um, 
that the whole society was moving in that area. You had the black the power movement. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. had had, had been assassinated in '68. Mm-hmm. Cone really came to Union in '69 mm-hmm. right. and began to look for students. Right. And so I was one of the first students that interviewed for him. He brought two of us that two of us to start the PhD program under him. Mm-hmm. And so, it, so he was a very challenging, supportive person. And at that particular time, his his writing was flourishing. And so, uh, you know, we we watched this happen in our own eyes because we would we would attend meetings, and and would watch people challenge him and how he mm-hmm. would push back and th- uh, part of that whole dialogical process so influenced us uh, tremendously. You're right, mm-hmm. you, you, and it's interesting because it, clearly it, this period that you're talking about, and and I hope that this is kind of a fair and question and a question that makes sense. Because social movements have the tendency to influence institutions, but mm-hmm. institutional structures and what's going on, the ideas that are flourishing inside those institutions can also influence those social movements. Could you see that at work at this period of time at oh, sure. Union? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Not even before that. Even at Colgate-Rochester. Uh, Colgate-Rochester, because Colgate-Rochester uh, in Rochester, New York, New York uh, uh, that particular uh, school had had been taken over uh, in the 70s by a group of, of, of black students who wanted black faculty there. And so they closed it down for a while. And the institution then responded, responded by bringing black faculty on board. And so when I came as a, as a, a student for one year, they invited me to come back as faculty member uh, within three years. But during that period of time, they passed a, a passed an institutional rule that no one who came to Colgate Rochester could graduate after having attended only one year. Okay, you follow what I'm saying? Oh, right, right. Okay, I do. So that allowed that, that allowed them to say, okay, we want these students who have our imprimatur to be with us at least two or three years. Wow! Wow! Well, that this is this is just so rich, that, and I'm learning I'm learning so many things I didn't even really know um, to this extent. So this this is fascinating. Um, so in many ways, your teaching career begins right at, at Colgate Rochester sure. Divinity School, and you you just said a bit about the context um, within which you were hired. You're also completing your dissertation <laughs> while you're while you're while you're teaching at Colgate Rochester. What was that like? Trying to balance being in the classroom with writing a dissertation and also how do students respond to you especially in light of the 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 climate that these black students had created at, at Colgate Rochester well it's very stressful uh very stressful <laughs> very stressful <laughs> very I know stressful. that drill <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> very stressful because here you here you had uh a person who was still in the process of um of writing a dissertation, I had the I had a proposal passed, and before I came, I had everything but dissertation. And by that time, they wanted they wanted people to come. Now, the Colgate Rochester made give made no um, um, uh, <laughs> took no kinds of uh, re- reductions in course load or anything like that for me to come. So I was I had a full course load. 
of course, Lord, in addition to writing the dissertation. Oh, man, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here going. <laughs> Listen to the yes, I'm and having not, now, having not taught, having not taught at the graduate level, I had to learn to teach graduate level students at, while I was doing that. So the institution was trying to respond to what the students were demanding. I was available, so they asked me to come back because I graduated. Man, Mark, I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> but I also want to say to, you know, mom and dad, if you're listening out there, now you understand why I'm so disagreeable, <laughs> right? <laughs> because, you know, I had a similar experience, but yours is heightened um, and more intense in the fact oh, yeah. that you're teaching graduate students at least you know, I you know I came here to UNC Asheville while I was still working mm-hmm. on a dissertation, but I was teaching undergraduate students. Yeah. Who some of those students today, when they see me, they say, "Yeah, we didn't think you were going to make it back then. <laughs> you were so stressed out." <laughs> yeah. And then other part, very quickly about that is mm-hmm. for the black students, they saw me as like a savior because they had black faculty. And mm-hmm. the white, some of the white students were very put off by by that, and even some of my colleagues. Uh, uh, some of my colleagues in the theological department, uh, mm. they didn't believe there was such a thing as black theology, you see. And they didn't necessarily agree with Cone, but they, the institution was trying its best to respond to what was happening. Mm. And to talk about James Cone real quickly and say that uh, that particular book, Black Theology and Black Power, was sort of opened the whole world of theological education up for black church studies programs, mm-hmm. for other black professors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to, to, mm-hmm. to really, uh, to really uh, fertilize the whole area. Yeah. I hope I answered the question yeah, so dude. much. Yeah, and great, great answer, Dad. So to, to leapfrog a little bit ahead here, you've yeah. done so much in your career, Dad. So um, uh, you, you, after serving as president of Payne Seminary for about seven years, you end up um, uh as pastor of a major AME church in Washington, D.C. Could you speak briefly about those two experiences and were the challenges that you faced similar or or different? Or similar and or different? Mm-hmm. Um, they were similar, I guess, okay. in a sense, because I had to, I had to move Paint Theological Seminary uh, in, a, in a direction of getting it accredited. That was okay. very, very difficult to do, and we were able to do that. That's one of my crowning, uh, one of my con- contributions that I'm most proud of okay. is that we were able to get the school accredited for mm. the first time in its history mm-hmm. uh, while I was there. Now, at being, a, uh, being at uh, Metropolitan uh, AME Church, uh, in a sense, I sort of moved that institution towards that sort of uh, thing. Uh, mm-hmm. okay. And James Cone came there. Uh, as well. Right. Okay. Well, Dr. Harvey, you know, I, if you could just stay with us for just a second oh. here, and Marcus and I are going to talk, do some closing thoughts here, but we, we are so glad that you were able to come in with us yeah. and just have this conversation. It just goes really too fast. We have to have another conversation, you have to Mar- come back, Marcus, uh, to do the next part of this show. <laughs> so Marcus and I will be back in just a moment. Well, again, this is the Waterson Harvest Show, and thank you all for staying with us. Marcus, I, it was just a joy to have your father here in the studio with us. He's still with us, um, and, and just really quick, you were hearing things that you didn't know. I yeah. heard the same thing, you know, when I had that conversation with my brother, with my son. But, you know, your father's about to retire. We want to mm-hmm. congratulate him Congratulations, on his retiring. Yeah. And, you know, and Dr. Harvey, what, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> 
rest. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. Brother, any final words? Yeah, I would just say, you know, one of the things from my father's uh, background that really stands out to me is the role that community nurturing mm-hmm. played in, in really fostering his intellectual development and his growth as a person. I okay. think it's important to get back to that, to that as a community. It is, yeah. it is. And I was hoping that we'd get a chance to talk about your father being a lover of the music of Nina Simone, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. who was a native of this region of our state. Oh, and uh, But w- when we have him back as a guest next time, we'll have to talk about that piece too because there's so much work going on with Nina Simone right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that he's following that. But again, thank you for bringing your father in. This has been a great conversation just looking at his career. And again, Marcus and I want to remind you that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And Marcus and I will look forward to talking to you all next time. Take care.